for people coming in the, into the industry. How do we create the opportunities so they can grow those skills while making sure that the trails that end up on the ground are high quality, super fun, and durable, right? And <laughs> we get to continue to have access to the land and to use them. And so in order to, you know, and, and how do we, yeah, how do we let both of those things exist at the same time? Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. Episode 120 features Mariah Kigi of Sinuosity Flowing Trails based out of Vermont. The fact that we pulled this conversation off in the first place is a testament of modern technology as the power was out at Mariah's place due to a snowstorm which left Mariah to work off of a laptop and a Wi-Fi hotspot. Mariah is responsible for all the trail planning and design at Sinuosity Flowing Trails. We covered everything from planning and design to what it means to put high quality trail on the ground and the state of the trail building industry along with some good stories in the middle. Cooley Creative is the title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips, and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head over to www.dojustsendit.com. Yes, that's right. www.dojustsendit.com will get you to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. I don't think enough people give credit to high-quality socks. I recently purchased a pair of the Fairweather Merino Wool Socks from Kettle Mountain, and let me tell you these socks are great, especially this time of the year when the weather isn't super warm. You can purchase the Fairweather Merino Wool Socks and all the other fine Kettle Mountain apparel at ketlmtn.com backslash josh, or hit the link in the show notes, and you'll be supporting the Trail Effect podcast in the process. I'd like to take a moment to thank all the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share the Trail Effect episodes on their social media accounts such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn along with tagging Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped more listeners find the Trail Effect podcast. Please keep up all the sharing, commenting, and tagging of Trail Effect. I'd also like to thank all the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. Now on to the Trail Effect with Mariah Kiki. We are live. Well, not really live. I mean, no, hey, we're live to us. <laughs> Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Mariah Kiggy. Mariah works for Sinuosity Flowing Trails. Is that how you pronounce it? Sinuosity? It's actually Sinuosity. Sinuosity. CM. Yeah, okay. Sinuosity yep. Flowing Trails. She's a planner, designer, owner also. Yep. Part owner. Correct. Mm-hmm. Part owner of Sinuosity Flowing Trails. She's got a Master's of Science in Environmental Studies from the Antioch University in New England. She is also a regional representative on the Vermont Greenways and Trail Council slash co-vice chair of that council. And she is a member of the Green Mountain Club. That is a board member, not just a member, but a board member. And she's on the Trail Management Committee on top of everything else that you have going on. So clearly, I think that's a trend with people in the trail world. They get involved in a lot of different things and you're definitely no exception to that. Yeah, I think I think it's one of these things that, you know, everybody is always looking for uh, you know, the the passion job, right? So you get the passion job and then you're so passionate you start doing it as not your job also. <laughs> so yeah, in a little deep and then lo- read uh more recently I'm now on our local conservation commission. So really piled it on. <laughs> Yeah, I can, I understand all of that for sure. But let's get into your backstory and what brought you into the world of trails. Yeah, it's kind of funny because my backstory is the whole story. I started to do trail work when I was 15. Uh, and I, it was part of a, basically it was a precursor to AmeriCorps. It was like a local, it was a, it was a National Conservation Corps program. Uh, that was around for just a few years. And so it was like an internship with my local forest service. 
And I learned how to do trail work and ended up working with Green Mountain Club as a volunteer in the backcountry for a couple months because they sort of ran out of things to do with me in the office. And so I fell in love with trail work at 15. And basically, I really wanted to work with the Green Mountain Club because I was in the Green Mountains of Vermont. And, uh, and they didn't hire 15-year-olds or 16-year-olds. So basically, you know, I was like, hey, will you hire me? And they're like, not till you're 18. So I was like, well, what am I going to do for two years? I'm not going to scoop ice cream. Um, and so, <laughs> so I ended up going to the Adirondack Mountain Club across the lake where they hired 16-year-olds, which I wouldn't advise professionally based off of my experience, but they did at the time. Um, and so I worked there for two years and then finally made it back to the Green Mountains when I was 18, you know, called them up and said, okay, are you ready for me yet? And um, so that's kind of the story. I fell in love with it, the first rock I set in the ground. And I basically, it's what I have done. And um, and so it started before my adult life. And so it is kind of the story of getting involved. And so from there, I moved all over the country doing trail work, basically moving around based off of the skills that I wanted to learn. Um, so, you know, I'm a rock person. So if you're a rock person, you go places that only have good rocks. And so and you learn from the people who are best at working with rocks and, and whatnot. And so that's sort of the, the story of how I got into it and, um, and developed the skills that led me to where I am. I think I tallied it up. I think I've worked in... 10 or 11 different states prior to becoming partners in sinuosity. So yeah, so that's long story short. Well, before we go deep on the sinuosity part of all of this, let's kind of talk about your role at the Vermont Trails and Greenway Council, and then we'll get into your other roles with the Green Mountain Club, and then we'll go into your professional work. Yeah. Um, the Trails and Greenway Council, I started. Um, I started as a you know, regional rep probably nine years ago. I was invited in to I was invited to you know put in a, a letter of interest from a, a dear friend and mentor of mine, Dave Hardy, who uh, who was the trails director for the Green Mountain Club for years and years, and who passed away a few years ago. And so I had the honor to serve on the council with him for a few years, and basically I have not been able to shake the habit. <laughs> it's what it is is it's a council of folks who, by statute, our job is to advise the uh, forest parks and recreation and the conservation and the, and the commissioner of forest parks and recreation on things related to trail-based recreation specifically. And so part of that is, so this is made up of a bunch of orgs who are all trail-based orgs. And so we also tend to do a bit of advocacy work uh, as well to support the Trails and Greenways Council. And so, yes, yeah, so I think it's probably been eight or nine years since I've been on the council. And we are finally, finally, finally going to be hiring our first staff person, which is very exciting. And yeah, it's been a long time coming. So how do you find that ties into your professional work? Just kind of putting those two together, like I'm assuming right. at those meetings. Yeah. People do ask, you know, professionally based questions, right? Yeah, yeah. So part of part of the thing that's really nice about my position on the counselor, what I bring to the council specifically, is that I'm not an executive director of an organization that has membership. So when I sit on the council and when I say what, you know, my opinions on things, it's based off of a perspective of really wanting to advocate for all the trail users I can think of in having a really great time and having access on sustainable trails. And I don't have any members of any particular user group that I need to um, I need to be representing. I'm just representing all the users on all the trails um, and and just sort of that access piece. And so sort of so it's really nice to be able to have that lens. And then the other piece of that is having the opportunity to bring in my expertise in certain specific places. For instance, we are trying to figure out the first steps of creating best management practices for trails in, in Vermont and really not just creating them because we already have some out there, but really compiling. And so we started that process 
And so compiling and, and sharing with the conservation community so that way we have some transparency on the practices that are currently being used and maybe some things that we're missing within the, within the local trail industry. And so it's nice to have my area of expertise being that sitting in, you know, next to executive directors and whatnot who have maybe varying other expertise. And so we really end up being a quite strong team because of that. I think that's super important in, in the trail industry is to be able to share that knowledge. And so we kind of are all on the same page with certain things. That's something I hope to see more of, you know, as we, as yeah. the industry grows. Let's transition to the Green Mountain Club. You kind of alluded at the beginning that you've been a, basically going to the Green Mountain Club since you were a minor, we'll say, and you're still, you know, you're a vice, you're a vice, uh, co-vice chair of that, and you are on the uh, trail management committee within that club. Let's talk about what that club is for those that aren't familiar and how your role integrates in with that club. Yeah. So, um, so I'm actually the co-vice chair for the Trails and Greenways Council. <laughs> which is in and of itself just a mouthful, all these mouthfuls. And then when you throw in acronyms in there, it just gets painful. But so the Green Mountain Club, yeah. So I've been involved with them since I was 15. And you wouldn't know this because you can't see the wrinkles on, you know, on the podcast, but it's been, you know, 27 or something years. And so I worked with them, you know, as field staff and whatnot, and um, came back into some trainings for their field staff over a few years. And then when I moved back to Vermont, it sort of became a, a obvious thing that I should get involved in a different way. And so, um, again, my friend and mentor, Dave Hardy, he invited me to, you know, to sit in on some meetings of the trail management committee. And so to back up a little bit, so the Green Mountain Club is, um, it's a Vermont trail-based nonprofit that manages the long trail and side trails that feed into the long trail. Um, and the long trail, for those who are not from Vermont, is a, um, it's a hiking trail that runs north-south through Vermont. And the lower portion also is co-located with the Appalachian Trail. And so it's a pretty extensive network. And it's been around for a long time. Yeah, so I've been on the Trail Management Committee for a while. Uh, and then I've been a board member for maybe, I think my first term is up. So I think it's been a couple of years. And sit in with the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Inclusion Committee when, uh, when I can manage in between the other meetings, but I think I'm a little over full on that one right now. Yeah, that's, again, I can relate. Let's transition to Sinuosity Flowing Trails. Let's get the backstory of that company, but let's start with the backstory of the name. Because there's a lot of trail names out there, or trail, trail company names. Yeah, so I didn't come up with the name. <laughs> I became partner. In uh, 2013, I like the name. Uh, we have also found that it's very hard for people to pronounce and to spell. <laughs> so, you know, you like go to the lumber yard and you're like picking up lumber. And it is really interesting what, um, you know, the different ways that folks uh, interpret the name. And so uh, what it is, is it's actually the, uh, the amount of turniness in the river. So it's actually a, a, a measure of, um, of the curviness of a river in terms of it's a cartography term. And so uh, Brooke Scatcherd is my partner in the business. And so he founded the business and he's the one who came up with the name and he had a background in doing a bunch of mapping stuff when he first started the business. And so, so that's how that came about. Yeah. And so, yeah, so we started the business in 2010 and then I became partner in the business in 2013 and uh, found my niche in the business really in being a trail designer and planner. I help out with some construction stuff, um, more so when I first started with our business, uh, but then sort of realized that, you know, that there's enough planning and design work that it really makes sense to have me there rather than um, trans lading and transferring all of my, you know, 20 something years of expertise and hand tools to getting an excavator and putting in the time. Yeah. So that was part of the discussion and I just haven't gone there. And I, yeah. And my brain works really well for the planning and design work. And uh, at this point I've been doing it for quite a long time and I love it. It's just, it's so key. It, yeah, we can talk and we'll, we'll be talking more about it. So I'm not going to jump the gun on that one. Oh, we can talk about it right now because that's one of my favorite topics to bring up on this podcast because I believe that there's not, there's just not enough emphasis put on the planning and design side of things and all of the 
all the benefits that are realized through planning and design, and that might be benefits of funding or benefits of educating the public on what might be happening on a certain piece of property to actually putting a quality product down on the ground when it comes to that point. Yeah, I, I, I can't reiterate enough how vital, I mean, obviously I am a planner and designer of trails, um, you know, but I was in construction for 20 something years. And then, you know, and then on top of that, just being a trail users and user, and especially because really primarily I mountain bike for fun now. And that aspect of, of the mountain bike trail industry is just, it is because well, all of all of the, you know, the the core trails that we have, the long trail, you know, hiking trail, a couple hundred years old and whatnot, right? These were all built by volunteers at one point. And the base of a lot of our favorite home networks were built by volunteers at one point. And these were amazing trails built in easy places to build trails. And so it makes it look like it's easy to just build a trail that anybody can ride. And and just that aspect of when we start to really when you see an industry grow, so the trail industry growing, and people want to grow their their networks, you just can't keep on going on that level and expect the type of outcomes that people are wanting, right? So they so people say, but we want a diverse trail network, right? We want stuff that's hard. We want stuff that is also really great for beginners. And I want to bring my family and have a great time. And we want tourists to stop by and have a great time. And they're taking these base networks and and trying to just do the same thing that they've done to start with and continue to do that and expect to have different outcomes. And so there's this piece about the clarification of goals and vision that I find is just like the most important thing, first off. Like, what do you want, right? And then if you can be clear on what you want, then you can say, okay, well, these are the opportunities that we have. Can we fit them in? Will the landscape give us what we are looking for for our trail network and what our community is looking for. And so I just, that that piece about, about the forethought of really thinking about what we want at this point, because we have so many folks have some base trails. And so it's not just growth for growth. People have ideas about what they're really looking for, but without taking the time to articulate and plan them and share them, make sure that there's a shared goal and vision. There's no way that you're going to get the community-based, maybe tourist-attracting trail network that you're looking for. And so, yeah, so that's that's one of my plugs for planning, <laughs> as well as to, you know, not tick off the neighbors and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Well, and, and this is something I haven't outright defined with a guest before on the podcast, and I know planning and design, those terms get used kind of get interchanged uh, in terms of like the use of those two terms. But let's talk about the difference between a plan or say a master plan and an actual design, which is something that you can use to build from. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It's interesting. I was just articulating this uh, in a proposal this morning. And um, yeah, it's so there's that piece about it really has to do with grain size, right? So when you're talking about designing a trail, you're actually looking at how the trail, it lays on the landscape. Planning is this sort of larger level and larger grain size. And when we talk about actually designing a trail, the way that I like to explain it to people in terms of our process is we have a conceptual design that we do. And then, um, you know, and then we have, then we actuate the conceptual design into what ends up being a flagged trail alignment in the end. And what it is, is like at the beginning, right? You just imagine like a, an empty canvas, right? Of this is your, this is your parcel that you have access to. And then you basically start to block out the areas. You're like, that's too wet. That's too steep for the intended trail that you have already articulated your designing for, right? So you're like, okay, so I want, you know, this and this kind of trail. Well, this part's too wet for any trail. This part's too steep. This part is next to the neighbor who doesn't want something really close to their boundary. And we want to be sensitive to that. You know, and suddenly you end up with, with these corridors of opportunity, we like to say, right? And then from there, you're like, okay, well, how do I get my average 7% grade for this type of trail that I'm looking for 
you know, that we can actually gain the elevation and whatnot. And so then basically that ribbon of opportunity becomes smaller and smaller and smaller with field truthing and map work and, you know, all these overlays of, you know, wetlands or sensitive stuff. And then you end up with, with something where you're in the woods and you're deciding which side of the tree a trail goes on because that's important. It's very important, that decision where you have trees, you know, which side of the tree, whether you're going to go above the root ball or below it and why and what kind of construction. And so the, so the design pieces and really designing the individual trail, whereas the plan is um, it's taking that the overarching vision and not thinking about the actual placement of the trail itself. So that's, I think, probably if I were to have to articulate it, I think I could probably do better with more practice. <laughs> Those are two important terms to, you know, define because they get interchanged, whether intentionally or not, you know, and because they are kind of similar, you know, you talk about planning, you talk about design, but right. at the same time, there may be a lot of master plans out there that do or don't get used. But when you talk design, those almost certainly get used. But yes, so that, um, and there's that aspect too, really, in terms of also, uh, you know, plans oftentimes will be taking into account whole networks, whereas design is usually more, you know, you're looking at a trail by trail basis, you know, and, and plans, you're looking at the trail itself as an, as an entity, not, you know, foot by foot of a trail. So, and then there's also maintenance planning and all that kind of stuff. So lots of, lots of planning. We're going to get to maintenance, maintenance in a little bit. So don't, I don't ever get off a, Get out of one of these uh, conversations about talking maintenance with people that know maintenance. So we'll get we'll get there for sure. Let's talk about maybe some of the tools that you use for planning. You know, both or planning and design, both like on the ground, but also you know, like at the computer. You know, because I think there's a different there's different companies yeah. and different professionals do things a little bit differently always to get to the same outcome, right? Because we yeah. want it. We want to put a good plan, a, a good yeah. design out for a company that may not be your company that's going to use, you know, depending on how things are laid out in terms of bidding and whatnot. Yeah, for sure. In terms of tools, <laughs> funny to think about this, but so for my planning tools, I'm just thinking about the process that I go through, right? So planning tools, you know, it starts always with a uh, startup meeting and a visioning meeting, goal setting, all that kind of stuff. And so tools for that are my facilitation skills. <laughs> Uh, which sometimes involves large paper and sticky notes <laughs> and, and that kind of stuff, um, you know, or Survey Monkey um, and those, yeah, those really like those facilita facilitation, stakeholder management and balancing, and you know, they're just those public comment opportunities are really, really those. Those are some pretty key things at the onset, and so more low tech, but not really because you're still, you're gathering data, right? And then, and then you have to deal with the data once you gather it. And so I would say that really, if you think about it a certain way, most of this process is about data gathering and being able to articulate the data as evidence for the recommendations that you pass on to a client. And so, so that's sort of one way to think about sort of like what the work is. So. Yeah, so one way that we collect data is we collect social data, right? And then for conceptual design work, you know, I probably spend about a day or two at the computer for every or every day I spend in the field. And so just sort of in terms of or maybe three days at the computer for every day I spend in the field. And so, you know, in terms of for people who are like, oh, this is such great glory work, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's you know uh it it's not um it's not quite what full-time field work is in terms of really getting out there but you know in terms of tools you know obviously lots of time at the computer and in terms of programs that we use you know we use ArcGIS some but in terms of our field data collection I mean we use for data gathering we use everything we can get you know, we use Strava, we use Trailforks, we use Gaia, we use Onyx Hunt, we use, haven't used Event so much yet. It's on the list. And we have a handheld GPS. I also use my phone a lot. Um, you know, we're, I use my phone a lot for 
things like maintenance management plans, right? Where you're taking photos and you're doing photo inventories of what needs to be done out there. And so lots and lots of Excel spreadsheets <laughs> and yeah, other tools, the car, we run biodiesel in it now. So that's, that's better. <laughs> and, you know, comfortable shoes. I don't wear those really heavy hiking boots anymore, you know, and I don't really use the clinometer so much anymore. You know, when I was first when I was first learning or teaching other folks, I would use the clinometer, clinometer more to just sort of check my check and make sure that I was that I was on par. But at this point, it's not really something that we bring along unless we're meeting with clients and we need to show them an example of you know how their idea of where something's going to go is going to be too steep. You know the the hundred foot tape that goes in the bag often, and then flagging tape. We buy it by, you know, by the by the crate. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so uh, not as environmentally sustainable as I would like it to be. It's all that, you know, that nasty, like whatever latex stuff, but it works. What about some stories? So I'm sure you've had a story. I'm sure you've got a story or two, story or two on getting, you know, getting planning going, gathering that social data, you know, which I'm sure it's been like, like everybody wants something different, right? You know, one person wants a super technical rocky trail. One person wants the super flowy, not rocky trail and, and everything in between. But what are some stories as far as like, like positive outcomes, especially in terms of dealing with civic leaders, you know, and, and things that maybe didn't go a direction that they thought it would go, but it went a direction that was actually a lot better, you know, cause they're just not privy to the, to the world that we work in. Yeah. I would say that Maybe not quite civic leaders, but uh, I think a, a pretty good example of something kind of similar. And I'm going to try to leave de- details of who out as much as possible. <laughs> is So we always do a lot of education, right? Like we spend so much time educating our clients. It is it's so much time. Every single meeting, it's really all about explaining not just what we do but just about sustainability and trails and trail users and what trail users need and what safety things are actually an issue and which ones aren't and all of that kind of stuff, as well as just like a normal sustainability process, that aspect of they don't necessarily know that wetlands are not places we want to put trails either. You know? <laughs> and so, so all that education happens. So, so one example of um, a sort of a, a a happy end of a maybe challenging process was there was a parcel on public land that pretty large that folks had been really, really, really wanting a mountain bike trail access, or they just wanted access to it. And they wanted trail or trails on it for like over a decade. And, you know, the local club folks had been scouting it. And, you know, our local chapters, they were all like really ready to go at it. And, uh, and they had just been getting no, no, no for so long. And then eventually there was a new person who was part of this agency who decided that, you know, who actually warmed the agency up to the idea of having, of allowing mountain biking on this parcel. And so they had an idea that they wanted one trail. It was going to be one trail that you go up and down. Yet they also said that they wanted this to draw people coming into town from various places. They wanted it to be a stop on the map. They wanted it to be progressive, fun for everyone. And so we had to explain to them that a, you know, two and a half or three mile one-way trail would be unsafe, not as much fun as they were hoping for. And it definitely wasn't going to draw anyone. (laughs) Because it's not worth bringing your bike there and taking it off the car, you know? And so there was this whole maneuvering that happened that we were able to get them to think about the trail users and to understand the trail users more in terms of, well, what do mountain bikers need? What do they like? Do they ride off trail? No, they don't ride off trail. We don't have to worry about that part too much if they have the trails that make them happy. So we ended up through all of these negotiations with, you know, with the with the committee that, you know, that manages this 
parcel, as well as all the agency folks for them to understand that what we really needed were directional loops for them to actually get what they were looking for. And so we ended up opening a whole different part of the parcel that they were not even considering and coming away with a great design that people talk about all the time because it didn't be constructed and, you know, and that people love. It's like on the list of, of things that, of, you know, some people, lots of people's favorite trails. And just sort of that, that aspect of the amount of education that needed to happen with folks who their job is to understand conservation and recreation, but they just didn't quite understand the details of this user group that they weren't as familiar with. And so I feel like that was sort of a, a, an educational win. And we ended up with really sweet new network and it's local to us. So that's nice. So you just went into an area that I didn't have on the list, but it's an area that I like to bring up whenever possible whenever the guest brings it up, and that is directional trails. I think directional trails are important. Obviously, sometimes they're just not an option, especially if it's maybe a connection between two systems or something like that. But maybe talk about some of the successes you found with directional trails and maybe the importance of that in terms of the user experience. Yeah. I mean, so it's it's such an interesting thing, right? So for this particular place, the reason why we advocated for directional trails so much is because there's a lot of elevation change and there's not really much you could do with that because there were, you had all these confines because there were very deep drainages that we didn't want to be crossing all the time, you know, for both ecosystem reasons as well as cost. And so all the time we're trying to balance, like I just talk, think about it as sustainability, right? Like sometimes I call it the S word because it's so overused, <laughs> but like, <laughs> and I kind of hate it, but at the same time, there's that aspect of like you're balancing how much money you spend, you're balancing the human experience and you're balancing, you know, the ecosystems that I personally am out there to enjoy. I love the stuff next to the trail um, as much as my experience on the trail. So yeah, so directional trails. So for this, there, there wasn't really a way to make it as cross country. So it was going to be relatively fast, I guess is the point because of just the confines of the property and the topography. And so, okay, well, if it's going to be relatively fast, we don't want people, we need it to be safe, first off, right? We need it to be safe. And then we don't want people to be grabbing a handful of brakes because somebody is huffing and puffing up the climb and, you know, and trying to figure out who's going to go and who has the right of way and all of that kind of stuff. And so, so for that particular place, it really was the silver bullet. And, you know, people are going fast enough downhill that, you know, it's not open to hiking and the whole rest of the property has tons of hiking. And so it's, it's really sort of a, a place for folks to be able to separate user groups because there were already opportunities for other user groups. And so they didn't feel like they were getting anything taken away, you could say, which is also, you know, one of the challenges and one of the ba balancing acts that we, that we do all the time. And so, you know, in terms of directional trails, there's just Safety, safety and user experience for everyone is just really such a key thing. And while it does, you know, make the amount of trail that you can ride or you have available to you to ride in your different ways, it means that you can also navigate the user experience oriented more towards being specialized, right? So it's really hard to have a phenomenal climbing turn that doubles as the sweetest berm you've ever ridden, right? <laughs> so if you're talking about certain types of trails, like, you know, whereas like if you're talking about like pretty technical trails that are quite cross country, just by nature, if you have the type of terrain and that's what you're looking for, it they really lend themselves a lot more. But when you're really starting to look at more speed and more gravity, you really have to sort of be thinking about that. Yeah, so different different types of riding. I like to say it a lot, which is it's, you know, leaning towards quantity or quality over quantity, right? Yeah. You give somebody a really high quality experience, you don't need as many miles to, you know, they're, they're going to want to do that experience over and over and over again. But yeah, so that network that I was talking about, you know, it's not huge, but people just lap it, right? They like lap it and lap it and they're having a great time out there. Well, then you also went down a path, pun intended, of having both hiking and mountain biking on the same piece of property, but as a, as a separate use. And, you know, there's, there's, I think there's a lot, this should be explored more in our, in our world, 
you know, because, and I do like, and I do, I do harp on getting, you know, quality shared use as well, because we do need to share in, in certain areas and avenues as well, just because it's what you have to do. But maybe you could speak a little bit to that quality of experience for both the hiker having their experience and the mountain biker having their experience, but yet they're leaving the same parking lot, right? Or the same trailhead. So where I really feel like this is, it's an important thing in terms of people's experiences really getting to know a community and getting to know, well, what do people love about this parcel, you know, or about this property? And, and how can we make sure that, especially because oftentimes mountain biking is the newer thing that's added on, or suddenly it grows and it's a use that was permitted, but there wasn't, there weren't enough mountain bikers to really, you know, change other people's experience. And so oftentimes for us, we're brought in to do something like a maintenance plan, right? And so that's where doing things like surveys is really important. So you can really get the feedback from people about, well, how do you like, what makes you happy? What do you love about your experience here? And that's where you can really know if you're making the right recommendations for a property or not. And for user experiences, one example that always comes up for me that we've had on a few different projects is, you know, birding as a trail use, right? And so there's that aspect of certain uses of land, such as a trail that birders are using to access a prime birding zone, doesn't really co-locate all that great with mountain biking in numbers, right? And so, or say a quiet meditation zone, you know? (laughs) And so that's where... As much as I love to create as much opportunity as possible for as many people as possible on a small parcel, there's that piece of, I really think that it's important to think about, yeah, what, how are people liking to use this and how can we protect this experience that brings them joy and brings them connection to the natural world, regardless of what they're doing, whether they are bird watching or whether what it is is like, you know, they, they love to, you know, rail downhill and then like stop at this one spot and then look and say, Hey, that's a cool mushroom. Right. <laughs> While you're waiting for your friends and, and just making sure that we're taking that all into account. And that's where the yeah, other, just some uses that just don't collate locate quite as well and their existing uses. Right. And so that's where really thinking about everyone's user experiences. Super key. And that goes back to the planning piece. Right. And Let's get into maintenance. You know, that's an area that it's a word that we don't maybe think about a lot because everybody wants the shiny new object. You know, and it was said recently in a podcast that everybody wants the new building, but nobody wants to take the trash out or mow the lawn. Right. So how do you deal with maintenance? Maybe deal is a bad word, but how are you addressing maintenance both on a planning perspective, but then also, you know, when you're getting brought in to do that on an existing trail or an existing network, that's maybe a legacy network. Yeah. So kind of shifted the language that we use when we're working on projects that are, you know, public lands projects. And I use the word instead of sustainable, more often I use maintainable because really just getting to that point of of understanding that we need things to be at a level that maintenance can keep it there. And so there's that if you use that term, then it's obvious that maintenance has to happen, right? It's like you, like you can't ever make a trail that, that doesn't ever need any maintenance. And so bringing that to the forefront in terms of the standard to which you build a trail, I think is just a, a starting place in terms of language. And so the big thing for us is like we have a huge variety of clients. And so the way that we talk about maintenance really depends a lot on who our clients are. And so when we're talking about volunteer capacity and we're talking about, say, building out a whole new trail network from scratch for a community that doesn't already have a history of stewardship of trails, then we have to help tool them up in order to know how to maintain their trails. Uh, And then there's that piece about, well, and we definitely don't want to be building trails for them that 
are going to need to be reconstructed at any point, right? That's where we want to build them at a level of maintainability that they can meet from basic maintenance. And so, so that's one aspect of, you know, how we talk about maintenance and work with maintenance and work to plan for maintenance with our clients. And then there's that piece about, or, you know, we build downhill bike parks. And so our, you know, our conversations about maintenance in terms of that are very different. You know, there's the question that I always have is, you know, who's going to be, do your maintenance? What's your maintenance budget? Are you expecting, you know, if you want a certain type of trail, you need to be ready to do major reconstruction on a regular basis. And, you know, and so that's, that is all part of the discussion when we're dealing with, you know, something like, like bike parks, uh, which we still build as sustainably as we can based off of what they're really their desired outcomes are. Well, let's go on to that topic because that's another topic I had on our list of topics is, which is bike parks and bike parks to me are, I find them super exciting from a user perspective, but also I do agree that I do think that a pay to play model is something that we need to maybe explore more in the trail world, you know, similar to, you know, winter sports, because it does allow for staff to be hired to do the maintenance that's required, but then also get an experience that you're not going to find at a, on public land, correct? And I think some of the places you've built at are, you've for sure built at Stratton and a handful of other places. And those are, you know, Stratton's a pretty iconic place in Vermont. So we, we actually, we're still, we're still building for Stratton. So that's exciting. Uh, I grew up not too far from there. And so that's, uh, that's doubly exciting. And then we, um, we, built, we built out Suicide Six, or they have a new name that I'm not remembering. I don't remember it either, but I knew that. I tried to practice saying it, and then I haven't figured out how to say it properly yet. And therefore, I don't remember it. So, but yeah, so we, we've done that. And then uh, we did a little bit of work at Wyndham doing some Skills Park stuff. And so in terms of bike parks, so there's a few different things, right? There's how I feel about bike parks as a trail user and how I feel about building bike parks. And, you know, the bike parks are exciting. They're exciting to build. They're exciting to imagine. They're, it's really fun to have a client who's really like focused on the fun and experience so much and to be able to build something from the ground up. Thinking about that is really, it's really a good time for us. It definitely has its own specific challenges as well. Um, and in terms of like something that I'm really into lately is the idea of having these, um, having bike parks that don't have chairlifts, right? That are pedal powered. And so that's where you put the e-bikes and you can manage the e-bikes and it's pretty sweet place for an e-bike and you just get more laps in, but it's also, you know, but you can also analog up it too. And so I'm just, I'm really into that idea. And so we're, yeah, we've been playing with that a little bit and, you know, doing our, doing our research, <laughs> our field research on what that looks like. Yeah. And it is, it is an interesting thing just sort of thinking about that that aspect of pay to play model and equity and then there's this thing that's really important for me which is trying to create places for people to recreate that are as close to home as possible and so that that aspect of you know instead of putting your bike on your car and driving it riding out of the door and you know and accessing what you can access from home and so and then yeah and so th there's there's a balance in there and personally, I tend to choose to access trails from home unless I'm going someplace for work. But then we also have to do plenty of field research. So that usually requires some travel to some places that we're curious about. Does some of that field research include places like maybe Rag Canuga or other places that have been known to do stuff like that that you just described? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, research and, you know, R&D is really important for small businesses, really keeps things fresh, you know? <laughs> yeah. I fully agree. I was just doing some research myself in, in the land of Oz Trails a couple weeks ago, and it's always interesting to see what they have going on because stuff is always changing there. And it's almost like a little, I don't know, 
petri dish or like test tube of like what comes out of a place that is wanting to push the envelope with trails. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we've um, we've been out there a couple of times. One of the things that really inspires us all the time is that we are part of the Professional Trail Builders Association. And so as part of that, it's really nice to see what our peers are doing all over the place. And so it's, you know, it's like, oh, hey, like, oh, where, so where is so-and-so building? And then, um, you know, it gives you a good opportunity to hit up some new trails and uh, see what's going on. I also, I don't think I would ever, I'm going to say, I don't think I would ever, because I never say never, but I'm 99.999% certain I would never live in a community that wouldn't allow me to pedal for access. It is because it, it's such an important thing for both me. And, and then I think it, it's super important for the, for the community. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's really key. Yeah. I also, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I love a good downhill and I love a good climb too. So there's, <laughs> there's that part too. Yeah. For sure. Especially with the amount of hours I spend at the computer. Like. <laughs> and this is a topic that I do bring up regularly with the right guests that are open to this. And that is what you had stated, a trail crew management fail and maybe better known as a learning experience. Yeah. So one thing that we didn't really chat about all that much is, you know, I sort of like, you know, glossed over 27 years of experience in trail stuff. And what was in the middle that we didn't really go into very much is that, you know, starting at like the age of 19, I became a crew leader and I was a crew leader, you know, all over the country on various trails, uh, or trail crews. And, um, you know, and, uh, and so when you start at 19 managing people and you're me, I didn't really talk that much. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty good at reading people, but you know, conflict was very scary. Still don't love it. <laughs> and so the amount of fails when you are learning to manage people is just huge. So, you know, when in that topic of like fails, I was like, yeah, where to start? Uh, one story kind of came up for me that is a funny one that I thought might be worth it. Um, and so it was this one trail crew that I managed for, let's see, there were like we had like 36 people on, you know, six or so different crews, like a contract crew and whatnot. And I was in charge of all these folks. And so, and planning their projects and, you know, overseeing them, hiring them, sometimes having to fire them and all that stuff. So there's this one project that it was a contract that we had off the coast of Maine on an island. And like, I have to set the scene a little bit because so these are like mostly all young folks, super hardworking, right? Like it's all handwork, so much rock work, just some really, really, really hardworking folks with this culture, really just busting their asses all the time. And so because I had like six or seven crews going at once and I have to like check in on them, see if they need anything, I'd be bopping around to all these different crews and I would like I started to like hike and run hike to go visit them. So I had basically, this is, this is a long story, but the point is that I was, is that oftentimes I wouldn't mean to, but I would sneak up on them. Right. I don't think I'm sneaking up on them. I'm just checking in on my crew and maybe they don't have radio reception. So they don't really know I'm coming. And I happen to not be very loud because I'm, you know, moving quickly and trying to be light on my feet. And so I have the tendency to sort of sneak up on my crews. Yeah, so I have this crew on the island and they're building a bunch of bog bridges or punching or punching or whatever. And so I didn't have a chance to tell them that I was coming and um, which is, like I said, it's normal. And so they're kind of used to it. And so I like have to take a boat out to the island and I and they're basically they have a really long lumber haul from one side of the island to the other to where the bridges are going in. And so I'm like feeling really bad for them. I think I probably brought them treats, you know, <laughs> it's like towards the end of the season. I'm hoping their morale's okay. So I like, get the boat right out and I go to go find them. And I'm like trying to not sneak up on them because, <laughs> you know, at this point it's, you know, becoming a thing. I'm like, I'm not trying to sneak up on you. I trust you. I know you're doing good stuff. And so I go and I like, and I'm hiking, hiking, hiking. And then I'm like, where are they? 
And then I get to this point, it's like this beautiful bluff, right? We're on this island, it's this rocky coast, and there's like a gap in the trees. And there's sort of like a beachy thing, but it's not a beach because it's Maine on an island. So it's these big rocks, right? And these cobbles and everything is like windy and blowing, beautiful sunny day. And I look out and there is a rowboat going through the choppy waves with a pirate flag loaded with lumber and floundering. And this is my trail crew trying to bring the wood from one side of the island to the other in the most efficient way that they could. And I'm seeing just the wind blowing and like, and the boat rocking and just this, like this scene on, you know, about to come to this rocky shore. And it was just this moment of like, oh my goodness, what do you do now? And so it's like, okay, the first thing is like, they don't even have life vests. Like, what are they doing? Like, can they even swim? I don't even know. And so eventually, the point is, is that they eventually got the lumber in. And so I'm watching this whole thing. And, you know, and they're like, oh, my God, what she's going to what is she going to do? Like, do we get caught at the same time? It's like they're doing the most efficient thing. It's not a bad idea. And so it was just <laughs> one of these moments of like, huh, why does a good manager do at this moment? <laughs> you know, and so that, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call it a fail, but it was just one of those things where you're just like, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> And so, so that's where I'd leave that one. I like the fact that there's a pirate flag involved with this. Yeah, totally. Well, they also had mohawks. If you know, if you need like a little bit more visual, it's also they they offer me one every year. It's sort of part of what they do. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah. The trails world when you get deep into it, it has some really great characters and all of these great uh, elements to it that a lot of people don't know about. Yeah, that's, that is definitely a, a real thing in the trail world is there's a lot of characters in, in the, in the mix. And I think that's what makes it super unique and, and special personally. Yeah. Yeah. What are some trends you're seeing or maybe the future of the trail industry from, from your perspective and the way it's going? Yeah. So the trail industry, so we've been talking a lot about this in Vermont We've also been talking a lot about this with our PTBA peers. And something that we are all seeing a lot of is more trails and more people being paid to build trails and a lot less professionalism. And in some places, a lot lower quality of trail that comes out of, out of this process that oftentimes public money is going to. And so it's a really interesting trend to watch. And one of the things that feeds into it that we've seen that sort of comes from this, you know, when I mentioned in my, in my, you know, my, my fail story about that aspect of traditions in, in trails, a very clear tradition of how you learn to do what you do in trail work is by working with mentors and learning from other people. That's how you learn it. There's, you don't learn it just by going out on your own. You learn it by working with people who know more than you. And it's a trade, you know, and that's, and that's what you do in this trade. And so there's this piece that, that, that folks are maybe not interested, not willing. I don't really know why they're not doing that, but seeing people seem to not be interested in that and really going at it on their own and learning that way using sometimes public funds in order to learn how to do this work as opposed to working under someone who is who is more skilled uh, until they're ready to go on their own and so it's an interesting trend and as i said we've noticed this in dis- in discussions with other PTBA members and so one of the things that's coming out of this is i have been working with the PTBA and American Trails Working Group with their trail competency framework and so part of that is, you know, helping people identify where they are in their trail skills and what level. And so I've been taking that framework for PTBA and parceling out the construction portion into what things look like at different levels, right? Because we can't all be experts at everything and we're not. And so, but being clear on what, what does it look like when I am an expert at something or what does it look like? when I'm proficient at something, or what does it look like if I'm just learning how to do something and that's okay too, right? And being clear with myself and with others 
And then potentially being able to partner that with saying, okay, well, I'm clear about what I am still learning, what my growth edges are, right? And I can then go and learn from somebody or take this training or whatnot in order to grow that skill I'm interested in. And so, um, so I feel hopeful that, that this challenge that we're seeing and this, what I would say, like a, a kind of a sad downturn in the industry, the, you know, that folks are working on rectifying that. So, you know, so I, I think that there are good things coming, coming around, but it's, um, it's an interesting thing to see after so long of, you know, 27 years of, of, of sort of this, this tradition of skill building starting to go by the wayside. I'm going to say from the outside looking in, I think one of the things that we could do better at is educating. And I don't, I don't want to sound preachy because it's not. It's not always good to sound preachy, but ed- educating, you know, the, the people that are, say, in parks departments or even newer, newer staff members in other government agencies that trail building is a trade. And you use the word trade, and I, I fully believe it's a trade, just like plumbing, just like electrical, just like masonry, just like carpentry. It's a trade. And it's something that you can't get good at without having that experience. And that experience does have to get passed down especially in a, from an institutional knowledge perspective, just like any one of those other trades, you know, and we had an explosion of trail use and trail users here in the last couple of years. And I think part of that people, anybody that has maybe an excavator or even a rogue hoe, all of a sudden calls themselves a trail builder and they may have never built a trail or they're a landscaping company. And because they're a landscaping company, you know, they may qualify to get a certain contract with a certain agency. And that's not, you know, we want to keep, we want to make sure that we're, we're inclusive in terms of get, letting you know, more people get into the trade, but that it's done in a fashion that is still putting out a quality product. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that you know, I, I, the way that I envision some of this also in that you know, some of these tools are being worked on is, is that aspect of being able to see, see, have transparency in terms of where people's skills are, you know, and not just say, hey, I'm a professional trail builder. And, you know, and you may or may not be a PTBA member, but just that aspect of, yeah, I'm just a professional trail builder. I can totally, you know, put in this bid. And how do you, how do you help agencies? How do you help clients in making their choices to also get what they get, what they're looking for? You know, there's, there's, has been a, in the past in the trail industry, sustainability for a lot of people has been a given. As to if you are building on public land, especially, you know, you need to be taking this into account. You know, you know, you need to be careful about knowing your triggers for different permits and things like that. And when you have folks coming in without that experience and without sort of that, that base value of, you know, if we don't do this, we don't get to keep on having permission to use this land that we don't actually own. You know, there's, there's this whole access thing that goes with all of this. And so it's so much more complicated than just, you know, a club raising some money, going with the lowest bidder and, you know, and then, and then so many of the repercussions about, you know, what happens when that product is not what people have come to come to know as trails on public lands. And so, yeah, so I, I think that, you know, we, there's a lot at stake right now, I think. And a lot of pressures on on the land, and we really need to be planning ahead so that way trails are part of the solution. Like where we are, right? There's like so much development that's happening in New England, and you know, with climate refugees coming in, and we've got subdivide subdivisions and large parcels and invasives and all of this stuff and all this pressure on the land. And then, you know, where do trails fit in? Are they part of the problem or part of the solution? And so that's where like linking it all the way back around to like, okay, what are the trends? What's going on? And how do we fix them? And like, okay, we got a plan for it. So that'd be my, that'd be my two cents of bringing it all back around to this is why I do what I do. Yeah. And then also strengthening, strengthening the the PTBA as, as an organization, you know, it's the only trade organization that I know of in the world, you know, and, and it is a trade organization. It's not, you know, it's not like say a club where you pay your dues and get into it. It's meant it's there for, to keep a certain, I guess, uh, 
what's the word I'm looking for? A certain, a certain standard or a certain bar minimum, right? That we don't always need to be sitting on. We want to make sure it has to be there, but you don't want to, you don't want to hit the minimum, you know? And unfortunately, some government agencies are required to hit you're to, to take, take contracts that are a low bid. But then how do we make sure that the people that are actually putting the bid in are qualified to be putting a bid in just because they have a contractor's license or maybe, you know, have a, have a company with an LLC or whatever, you know, the barrier is to get in, to be legitimate, right? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we've been talking about this a lot uh, in Vermont, actually with somebody who I think you're going to be chatting with soon, Nick Bennett the executive director of Vermont Mountain Bike Association and and just sort of that aspect of how do we, you know, again, we can't all be experts in everything. I'm not an expert in everything. I'm very good at certain things and other things I'm still learning, or maybe I'm never going to learn them, and, but I'm not going to charge a client in order to learn them. And, and so the conversations have been, you know, how do we, for people coming in the, into the industry, how do we create the opportunities so they can grow those skills while making sure that the trails that end up on the ground are high quality, super fun, and durable, right? And <laughs> we get to continue to have access to the land and to use them. And so in order to, you know, and, and how do we, yeah, how do we let both of those things exist at the same time? Let's get into, we kind of talked about it very briefly, but when we, when we initially started communicating via email, thanks to Aaron Kay at the Professional Trail Builders Association, you had indicated that you were just wrapping up your build season and that you were going to be going somewhere warm. And maybe that was to do some field research. But what are, the, what are some of the things you look for when you're going to do some field research or go on a vacation to another community in terms of seeking that warm adventure? Yeah. So aside from being warm, being able to bike, you know, the other things are always looking for someplace that has a lot of natural beauty, rural you know, neither Brooke or I are city folks <laughs> and, uh, you know, healthy ecosystems, some cool stuff to see. Um, and I would say that, you know, I really am looking for like good, solid climbs and really fun downhills. And those two things paired. I really have been really psyched on places that we can get longer descents than we can get locally in New England. And so um, so that's something that we've been looking for a lot lately. And then the other thing for me is definitely as much sunshine as possible and ideally an opportunity to surf during the same trip. So that's that's like, you know, that's that's the checklist. <laughs> and uh, and I don't know, really great corn tortillas are helpful. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how all those places pair up. And the the state that comes to mind for me right now when trying to pair all that stuff is maybe Oregon or California. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of it is that it has to be it has to be warm during our off season because, you know, we just don't really. And at this point in our business, we still have not figured out how to spend enough time uh, on bikes during the field season. And so while everybody else is like going wild and crazy with their bike season and getting in like the best shape of their lives, we are, uh, you know, working hard building trails and designing and planning them. And so, um, yeah, so basically when, you know, when it starts to be rainy and 35 degrees in Vermont, that's when we're looking to get out of here and, and ride our bikes somewhere. And so we tend to be headed pretty far south if you're looking at, you know, riding a bike in December or January. I mean, if you're sticking to the East Coast, you're probably talking North Carolina, South Carolina, maybe uh, Georgia, Tennessee, East Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. We haven't, uh, we haven't, we've been talking about going, heading down to Georgia and Alabama to check out trails down there. So um, it's on the list. We're hoping to maybe sneak something in before the field season starts, but got a lot lined up this year. So we'll see. As we wrap this thing up, what kind of words of wisdom do you want to leave the listener with? And how do we find sinuosity flowing trails? Yes, there'll be links in the show notes as well. So words of wisdom from your trail planner is that you get what you plan for. And in terms of how to reach us, you can either get a hold of Brooke or me at brooke at 
And uh, you probably want to look at this at the show notes in order to uh, see how that's spelled. I won't spell it out for you and make it painful. But yeah. Oh, and I have one more thing aside from thanks is we're hiring. So if anybody wants to relocate to the beautiful state of Vermont, <laughs> we are looking for any level um, operators. Uh, we will train you. Um, we've got some great projects. And yeah, so if that can fit in there, we'd love to have you. <laughs> and thanks for having me, Josh. Well, Mariah, thank you very much for you know taking some time out of your day and coming on the show. It's it's been a pleasure to to continue to go down this path of of sharing all the knowledge that trail builders have. And I think this is a this is a way, at least it's a way that I keep hearing over and over again that other builders get to hear from other builders while they're building or while they're planning, you know, and I I feel fortunate to be in the in the position to share this with others. So thank you very much. I hope you liked the conversation with Mariah. Coming up next is a bonus episode with Marty Scheel of the Sierra Buttes Trail Stewardship, where we talk all things Downeyville Classic and the new Dirt Magic podcast. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. If you listen to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast, please don't forget to leave a rating and review as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. Also, check out Cooley Creative at www.dojustcenter.com. That's www.dojustcenter.com to find all of the great stuff that Cooley Creative has to offer. I'd like to thank all the listeners and guests who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. With that, the value for value concept is something that has caught my attention. If you find value in the Trail Effect podcast, you now have a way to provide value for that value via Patreon for Trail Effect. For additional ways to help support the Trail Effect podcast, check out the affiliate links on the Trail Effect website where you'll find links to Kettle Mountain Apparel, Worldwide Cyclery, and Trail One Components. By using the affiliate links found at www.traileffect.com, a small commission will come back to the podcast, which helps keep this thing going. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening.